Some of you who follow me on social media will have noticed that I've been experimenting with a bit of a digital detox, or what I'm calling being analog curious, wanting to know what life feels like, relying on technology a little bit less. In the past two years, technology has barged its way into almost every aspect of our lives. And for a while now, it hasn't been sitting well with me. It feels a lot like a double-edged sword. During the pandemic, a time of great isolation, technology brought us together in ways that weren't possible 50 or 100 years ago. Technology has brought about amazing possibilities for community building, information sharing, social connections, and many other incredible opportunities. But that being said, it does feel like this shift has kind of just happened to us, probably outside of our awareness. And in many cases, I know my own, it feels like a shift towards compulsive use. I pulled up a dictionary definition of compulsive, and it says, resulting from or relating to an irresistible urge, especially one that is against one's conscious wishes. So I've been doing some reflection and exploration around my own technology use, and that's what I'm sharing today. Hi, this is Danae. I'm the founder of Simple Families. Simple Families is an online community for parents who are seeking a simpler, more intentional life. In this show, we focus on minimalism with kids, positive parenting, family wellness, and decreasing the mental load. My perspectives are based in my firsthand experience raising kids, but also rooted in my PhD in child development. So you're going to hear conversations that are based in research, but more importantly, real life. Thanks for joining us. Hi there. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today's episode is titled Analog Curious, and I'm going to explain a little bit why I'm calling it that. I'll be reflecting on the way that screens really came into my life and how it's changed over the years. A lot of it happening beyond my awareness. As I've started to notice the ways that technology has crept into my life for both the good and the bad. As with all aspects of simplicity, digital simplicity isn't just going to happen to us. In fact, digital overwhelm will most definitely happen to us. If we want to scale back and we want to simplify, it's going to take a more intentional process. And as I've been finding, it's not an easy process, but it has been one that feels right for me. If you are in a place in life right now where you are just surviving, maybe you just had another baby, maybe you don't have childcare, maybe the pandemic is still raging and you still can't really even leave the house. If you're leaning on screen time, to get you through one of these difficult phases. Know that that's okay. We've all done that. I know that I absolutely have done that. If that sounds like you, maybe save this episode and next week's episode. This is going to be a two-part series. Save them for another time. File it away when you're ready to come back to it. Because I know if I would have heard this conversation a year ago, it would have been hard for me to hear because I wasn't quite ready to tackle this yet. But now I'm in a place in my life where both of my kids are in school. Things are feeling pretty stable. Remote learning seems like it's off the table. And I'm ready. I'm ready to start making some changes. 
if that resonates with you and you are also ready to start making some changes in your own life and in your home, then maybe this series will resonate with you. I'm going to tell you some of my own stories and my own reflections on the impact of technology in my life. Over our lifetimes, if you're in my age range, I'm 38, technology has massively and quickly evolved and changed, and we have evolved and changed right along with it. And I know I haven't thought much about those changes and the way they've impacted me and how much of it has happened really outside of my control or really awareness. So for me, it's been really helpful to spend some time reflecting on all of this. But of course, my story is going to look very, very different from yours. And your children's stories will look very different from yours. Your partner's story will look very different from yours. Our brains are all wired so uniquely. Some of us are able to walk away from technology easily. I would say in the current day and age, that's probably the minority of us that are able to do that. But some of us seek screens more often. And there's always a lot of conversation on how much screen time is too much for kids. But I have started this scary self-reflection process of looking at my own screen time and wondering how much screen time is okay for adults. And is it possible and necessary for us to set some limits for ourselves too? So I want to start with this recurring dream that I've had and I've been trying to figure out for a while now that my husband and I take our kids back to the condo that we lived in right after we were married. So the year was 2010. We were living outside of Washington, D.C. We got married in April and we moved out of our condo in June. We moved to Chicago for my husband to start his master's degree. In this dream, we go back to the condo with the kids, knowing, this sounds so terrible and so inappropriate, but I'm going to share it anyways. So we take the kids back to the condo, knowing that the people who bought it from us, who had moved in and had been living there, were on an extended vacation. So we would kind of like weekend at our old apartment in our old condo with our kids and pretend like we had our old life back. And then finally, in one of my dreams, we got caught. The family who had purchased it from us came in and they caught us there, eating dinner at the dinner table. Fortunately, they were very forgiving, did not call the police. So over the course of this recurring dream, you know, we had been going back and sneaking in, we had saved the key, sneaking into our old condo, living our lives back in 2010 with our kids. And in this final dream was the only one where we got caught, where they walked in and found us there. And that's at the point where I woke up and I was like, okay, what does this mean? (laughs) This is so weird. I would never do this in real life. And I started thinking about what was significant about that time period. What changed in that time period? I mean, we so much changed. We had got married. We had moved halfway across the country. But what was it about life in 2010 that I wanted to go back to, and I wanted to take my kids with me. It wasn't that I just wanted to go back to like pre-kid life. I wanted my kids there with me. In reflecting on this dream, sort of nightmare there, I realized that a huge change did happen when we moved to Chicago. Just a week or two after we moved to Chicago that summer, 
I went to Old Orchard Mall to the Apple Store and I bought my first iPhone. And I've talked a little bit about how when significant things happen in my life, I often have this little mental camera that takes a snapshot of the image of that moment. And, you know, I have a snapshot of what that moment looked like, it's a mental camera of when my son was born and when my daughter was born and when I saw my husband when I was walking down the aisle. Lots of different moments over the course of my life. One of those moments was when I was sitting in the parking lot unwrapping my iPhone at the mall that day. I have a very distinct memory of it, thinking to myself that my life was about to change in a very big fundamental way, and I wasn't exactly sure why. So now I'm hypothesizing that taking my kids back to 2010 may be taking my kids back to a quieter time when a smartphone didn't rule my life, when it was easier to be present and engaged with the people that we love. I've been uncomfortable with my own tech use for some time now, especially during the pandemic, I would say. I think for most of us, our tech use went up exponentially during the pandemic as everything we used to do in person became something we were doing online. Even though it wasn't sitting well with me and I felt uncomfortable with it, I didn't really know what to do about it. Earlier this winter, I read a book called Dopamine Nation by Dr. Anna Lemke, and I was fascinated by it, terrified by it, didn't completely agree with everything in it, but nonetheless, it really made me think. And that's really where this conversation and this reflection process started for me. I would say my biggest takeaway from Dr. Lemke's book, Dopamine Nation, And of course, now I'm going to try to sum up an entire book in like two minutes and not do it justice. I apologize for that. This is oversimplified. My biggest takeaway from the book was this idea that the pain and pleasure centers of the brain are co-located and we alternate between these two states. When we experience pain, we seek pleasure for relief. And then when we're experiencing that pleasure, We try to avoid pain, if at all possible. After I learned about this principle, I started to tune in to myself and to my kids, noticing when this pain-pleasure dynamic came up. A kid's watching YouTube, one pleasurable video after the next, and then it's time to take it away. There's a whole lot of pain there. An adult is binging on Netflix. You're in the middle of a series. You've got to know what happens next after the cliffhanger. You've got all that pleasure, all that stimulation, but it's really time to go to bed and you turn it off. The pain from walking away from that, it's hard, but also in the physical sense. We were skiing this winter and we went down a very, very crowded hill and my daughter, who is still a very new skier, was very nervous and very anxious, as was I. She did great, but when we got to the bottom... She looked up at me and said, okay, can I have my iPad now? Which is not something that she has ever really asked for out of context like that. She's definitely asked for screen time before, but to be out on a mountain in the middle of an activity and all of a sudden say, okay, I'm ready for my iPad now, that's pretty out of character for her. But what was that other than experiencing a great deal of pain and anxiety coming down that crowded hill? and looking for pleasure, looking for relief. And like so many of us in the world, maybe most of us in the world, that easy relief, that easy pleasure 
is usually just an arm's length away. So I talked to Dr. Lemke about her book and some of the ways that I was noticing this pain-pleasure dynamic coming up in my own life. And one was any time that I started to feel annoyed or irritable with my kids, I would reach for my phone, almost like a reflex. Like there was a whine, I reached for my phone. There was an argument, I reached for my phone. Then I did a scary thing, which was I looked into the screen time statistics on my phone to see how many times I was picking up my phone in a day because there are the number of pickups are listed there. And that was terrifying because I pick up my phone a lot. And I would imagine if I'm having a hard day, a rough day, I'm probably going to be picking up my phone a whole lot more because it is a lot of easy pleasure, an easy way for me to numb. So I shared this with Dr. Lemke that I found that I was reaching for my phone every time I was irritated with my kids. And what did she think I should do about it? And she said that I could try instead of leaning into the pleasure when I was experiencing the pain or the annoyance or the irritation that I could try to lean into the pain. So I could do some squats or some push-ups, put my hand in cold water, do something that made me a little bit physically uncomfortable. And I was like, okay, I'll try that. And I did it. And it was fascinating. And I do think that it worked. But it also didn't feel like something that was really sustainable in the long term. Like every time I get annoyed with my kids, I drop down and do 10 push-ups. Probably would be really great for my body, but just not not practical. Like Not something that I'm going to keep up with. Something that's interesting for an experiment, yes, but not something I'm going to be able to keep up with long term. Also, I'm kind of imagining my kids like watching me all of a sudden. I'm like dropping and doing a bunch of crunches and they're like, oh, looks like mom's getting irritated. Looks like mom's pushed to the edge. (laughs) I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, it could be a really healthy way for our kids to notice when we are struggling to regulate our own emotions because we all do struggle to regulate our own emotions. Knowing that leaning into the pain probably wasn't a way for me to really long-term sustain this. I thought to myself, what if I removed some of that easy pleasure? So when I experienced the pain, it wasn't so easy to escape from. What if my phone wasn't an arm's length away? Which really started to make me wonder if our generation of parents are getting more irritated and more frustrated with our kids because we have so much easy pleasure at our fingertips. Now, of course, parents have been getting frustrated and irritated with their kids for generations. But what if technology is playing a role in this for us? Many of us think that we are great multitaskers. I think I'm pretty good at task switching or multitasking. But the research actually shows when we get disrupted and we have to switch tasks, maybe we're in the middle of sending a work email and our kid comes up and asks for something and they need our help. It takes us about 20 minutes to get back on track and pick up where we left off to regain our train of thought. Now, of course, that 20 minutes isn't standard. It's different for everyone, different all the time. Some of us have a harder time with task switching. For those of us that do have a harder time with task switching, we're probably going to be more irritated by disruptions from our kids. When your kid asks you for a snack and you're doing something on your phone, it's going to be harder to pause. You're not just going to pause it and set it down and go get the snack or go help them with a snack. Maybe you notice yourself sigh loudly and feel a little irritated that you have to stop doing what you're doing in order to go help your child. 
So this is just a hypothesis. This is something that I've been thinking about because I do think that it's impacting me. And I wonder how many other people out there are also impacted by this. And I really think the only way to find out for sure is to give it up for a little while. I know this sounds really crazy. The idea of being screen-free for a little while as an adult, it's kind of terrifying. may feel impossible based on your work life and other things. But many of us spend a lot of time and energy trying to regulate our kids' screen use. What if we did better about regulating our own screen use? What impact would that have on our relationship with our kids? I definitely hear a lot of parents saying, oh, I want to be a better role model. I need to use my phone less to be a better role model. But I think it goes one step further. I think getting better control of our own screen time use will actually have an impact on our engagement and how we enjoy our kids. So instead of dropping and doing 20 crunches, leaning into the pain, what if we were to cut back on some of our own screen time, make it less accessible for us, so that we are inclined to reach for the healthier options for pleasure. So we are inclined to avoid the pain less and to sit with the pain a little bit more. I called this episode Analog Curious because in many ways it feels very much like the sober curious journey did for me when I gave up alcohol a couple of years ago. For those of you who aren't familiar with the sober curious movement, it is a group of people who want to know what life without alcohol is like. Maybe not people who are alcoholics, maybe people who are alcoholics, but people who are uncomfortable with their relationship with alcohol, who want to try to see what life is like with less or without. It's called curious because it's not a commitment, more of an experiment. And that's how this has felt for me. We're going to pause for a three minute word from today's sponsors. When we return, I'll talk a little bit more about that. Our first sponsor for today is Evite. When you're a kid, every birthday is a big deal. So when it comes time to plan the party, use Evite. Evite has thousands of free invitation templates, all totally customizable. My son had a ninja party this year, and sure enough, I found a handful of different ninja birthday party invitations. Not only do I like using Evite to create invitations, but I also like receiving my invitations through Evite. I find it really helpful to get reminders when I need to RSVP, if I haven't done that already, and reminders that the party's actually happening. There's also the added bonus that I don't have to keep track of one more piece of paper. Find amazing, beautiful, one-of-a-kind designs in minutes for free. Head to evite.com simple. That's E-V-I-T-E dot com simple. Evite.com simple. Our second sponsor is Ana Luisa. Ana Luisa jewelry is made for you and the planet in mind. Their pieces are 100% carbon and water neutral, and they're also really pretty. I'm actually wearing a colorful, fun pair of their earrings right now. They have versatile designs that are fun to mix and match. I have a few of their classic pieces and a few of their brighter, more adventurous pieces. Ana Luisa, that's A-N-A-L-U-I-S-A, has timeless jewelry for any occasion. A cute ring that you can wear to the grocery store, a fun bracelet you can wear to have coffee with your friend, or even necklaces that look a lot more expensive than they actually cost. 
Ana Luisa jewelry starts around $39. The prices are great and so is the quality. If you shop with our code SIMPLEFAMILIES, you can get 10% off your order at shop.analuisa.com. If you need a gift for a loved one or even yourself, using the code SIMPLEFAMILIES at checkout will get you 10% off. The third and final sponsor for today is Seed. I have learned that not all probiotics are created equal, but I have still struggled with choosing the right one because there are so many options out there. Seed makes something called the Daily Symbiotic. It's a broad-spectrum, two-in-one, probiotic and prebiotic. They have a specially designed two-in-one capsule that actually protects the probiotics through digestion to make sure that they're delivered all the way to the colon. If you've taken a probiotic before and you haven't felt a difference, it could be that the good bacteria wasn't making it all the way through your GI tract. But seed is designed differently, and that's why it works differently. I'm someone that gets really caught up in researching to find the best of everything, And I really appreciate that Seed has already done that research for me. Start a new healthy habit today. Visit seed.com forward slash simple and use the code simple to redeem 20% off your first month of Seed's daily symbiotic. That's seed.com forward slash simple and use the code simple. Thanks so much for supporting our sponsors. They help to keep this show alive. Back to today's episode. What did the Sober Curious movement do? It really encouraged people to take a closer look at the unhealthy habits that are associated with alcohol. Taking a closer look at the impact of a digital life, of a life that is deeply rooted in technology. What are the impacts, both physical, emotional, social? How has it changed my life in ways both good and bad? Back in episode 184, that's simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 184, I shared my story about giving up alcohol for my first year and what that was like for me. It was such an insightful experience. I learned a lot about myself in the process, a lot about the ways that alcohol impacted my life. And when I decided to do that, to try out the Sober Curious movement, It was because alcohol had become sort of a mental gymnastics for me is the best way that I can describe it. I really wasn't drinking that much. And actually, there have been some people who have reached out to me that said they felt like I was undermining the journey of alcoholism because I wasn't an alcoholic and I was talking about giving up drinking. And I'm sorry if that's how this comes across because it's really not meant to do that. I was probably only having two or three drinks a week. So I was successfully moderating my alcohol intake for a long time before I gave up drinking. But the challenging part for me was the mental gymnastics. That even when I wasn't drinking, I was debating whether I should be drinking. Five o'clock came around every day thinking, oh, it's Tuesday. Should I have a glass of wine? No, I shouldn't have a glass of wine. Why do I want a glass of wine? Okay, maybe just one glass of wine. Okay, maybe just a second glass of wine. No more alcohol on weeknights. Friday night came around. All right, it's Friday. It's the weekend. I'm just going to have one drink this weekend. Okay, maybe two. None next weekend. We're taking next weekend off. There was this constant banter within my own brain around it. 
and it was exhausting. It was taking up an unnecessary part of my mental load. And I found that just giving up alcohol together completely removed that banter, that gymnastics that was going on in my head. And it brought me a lot of peace because alcohol was taking away a lot more than it was giving. So how does this all relate to technology and screen time? Remember, I'm only talking about myself here. Draw your own conclusions for yourself if this relates and resonates with you. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. So I've had that same mental gymnastics over my kids' screen time use for years, since they were born, basically. My oldest was born a screen seeker. I remember when he was three or four months old and he would turn his head and catch the light from the TV and be unable to look away. Now, I know that's typical for a lot of babies, but that continued. I think one of his first sentences was, five more minutes, George. Five more minutes, George. (laughs) He started, I started giving him TV right around the time my daughter was born when he was just over two. And we would do these five minute episodes of Curious George. And I had a hard time transitioning from one to two. And my daughter was not an easy baby. And I really needed some uninterrupted time to focus on her, to be able to get her down for a nap, to be able to feed her. So we leaned into some screen time use during this hard time for us. And I carried a lot of guilt about it. And he really loved it. And he really sought it out. Five more minutes, George. Five more minutes, George. I'll never forget him asking me for that. And feeling shame around it and feeling like I was creating this monster. And why did he love it so much? You know, and as he grew, that didn't change. Just like I moderated my use with alcohol, I moderated my kids' screen time intake. But I still had this mental gymnastics around how much is too much? Is a little bit more okay today? Oh, it's Saturday. It's fine. That constant self-doubt, even though, you know, as a child development expert, I know that my kids are not being damaged by this screen time. My kids have used a lot of screen time over the years. In no way do I feel like I have done any irreparable damage to them, nor do I think that you have. Now, every child is so incredibly different. My daughter has never, ever been a screen time seeker. She's someone that has very easily and quickly engaged and initiated play. It's always been harder for my son to initiate play and to sustain longer periods of play. I think that she's been able to tap into that pleasure from play a lot easier than he has. And as a result, she can pretty easily get pleasure from play in a way that he has a harder time doing. Because it's harder for him to get pleasure in play, he seeks it out more in screens. I remember when he was about four and he came up to me and he tapped me on the arm And he kind of hung his head. I know I've told this story in the podcast before because it was another one of those snapshot moments for me. But he hung his head and he said, you know what I'm going to ask for, right? And I said, yeah, I, I probably know. And he said, you know, I don't know why I like screens so much. And it became obvious to me that he was experiencing shame around how much he enjoyed screens. And that was a really a light bulb moment for me because I realized that shame 
had largely been coming from me. I had played a huge role in that because I felt shame. I felt like I was raising a kid who only cared about TV. Why did he want TV more than he wanted to go for a hike? My daughter loved going for hikes. Why could she find pleasure in hikes, but he wanted to find all his pleasure in the screen? And I think as parents do, I blamed myself for that. I don't know why, but you know, it must have been something that I did along the way or something that I didn't do that had caused that screen seeking, which is fascinating because I've always known on an intellectual level that our brains are wired differently. And as a result, some of us seek more dopamine, seek more input. And that is very likely what accounts for the differences in the screen seeking, not anything that I've done or anything that I haven't done. But it's one thing to know it intellectually, and it's another thing to really know it on a deeper heart level. So when I had this interaction with him and I realized I had been shaming him for his love of screens, I said to him, I love screens too. I think everybody loves screens. That's okay. But as your mom, it's my job to keep your brain and body healthy. And to do that, I have to make sure that you don't have too many screens. So you're still moving your body and using your brain in new ways. Because it's true. I do love screens. I get a lot of pleasure out of screens and that's okay. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I have been now encouraged to reflect on technology use in my life and how it's changed and how it's evolved and the impact that it's having. And maybe some things I'd like to change and do different. Or maybe even experiment with doing differently. My technology use is deeply integrated with my information seeking. I have been an information seeker for as long as I can remember. I was a highly gifted kid who grew up in a home without books. So I read the dictionary. I studied the globe. I literally sat and stared at the globe and studied it and memorized all the countries. I remember desperately wanting a set of encyclopedias because I wanted to learn random stuff about the world. My first real interaction with computers was when I was in fourth grade and we had an Apple IIe in the classroom and I would choose to stay in from recess so I could play on the computer. Now, looking back, I don't even remember what I was doing, something very basic. But I was intrigued from a very early age, even when screens were very primitive. My uncle built computers, definitely not Steve Jobs, more of a mom and pop computer shop when those existed. But he built a computer and gave it to us probably when I was in about sixth grade, so around 12. And it came with a free CD-ROM called Encarta. I don't know if anyone remembers that, but it was a free encyclopedia CD that came with new computers and with Microsoft. And that was like the best thing that ever happened to me. (laughs) At my fingertips, I had all this information and I literally read that encyclopedia from the A all the way to the Z more than once. The internet didn't come into my life until later when I was 13 or 14 And with the internet, information acquisition changed exponentially. We didn't have to go to the library to get information anymore. We could sit down at our computers. 
and find pretty much anything we wanted, even stuff outside of the encyclopedia. When I was 15, my uncle hired me to work at the support desk for a local internet company that he was running. And that was my job all through high school. And at that time, I had started chatting online with a handful of friends that were outside of the area that I couldn't call on the phone because it was long distance. Therefore, the internet was becoming not just a method for information acquisition, but also for social connection too. I didn't have to buy those phone cards and punch in the 15-digit long numbers. I don't know if you remember those. But internet chat gave us a way to talk without having to pay and get phone cards and pay long-distance fees, which were very expensive. So after high school, I also put myself through college working for technical support for my university. I was always on a computer. And when texting came out on phones, I was always texting. And then Facebook came out when I was a senior in college. And I was an early adapter, joined, and really enjoyed looking at profiles of different friends and people I didn't know that well. I was getting ready to graduate from college and separate from a lot of my closest friends, and it was a way to stay in touch. But at this time, there was no news feed. I think it was at least a year or two, maybe three years later before the newsfeed started. When Facebook first started, it was just a bunch of profiles. And if you wanted to look someone up, you typed in their name and their profile came up. But when the newsfeed came up, it started to give you updates and changes whenever someone made an update or a change. So you could see what was happening in everyone's lives without even seeking out that information. It was just thrown at you. And I distinctly remember thinking to myself, why would I constantly want to see what other people are doing? I was living a very busy life and felt like I could barely handle my own life. But now I was trying to stay in touch and up to date with hundreds of other people's. Wasn't really sure why I'd want to do that, but I did want to, and I absolutely did. Without giving a second thought to the impact that it was having on my well-being already being busy and hurried, and now hugely increasing the input and the information coming at me about other people and their lives. And not thinking about me as a competitive perfectionist type, the impact that it would have on how I would compare myself to all those other people and compare all my life goals with theirs and my timeline with theirs. You know, when were they getting engaged? When were they getting married? When were they having a kid? Where were they living? What kind of job did they do? So I was a pretty heavy Facebook user in the early years until Instagram came around and found that I enjoyed looking at pictures more than reading text updates, as many probably did, and started spending more time on Instagram. This week, we're talking more about the why why I'm choosing to go down this path and some of the reflections. And next week, I'm going to talk more about the how. And in that, I'm going to talk about how specifically technology and screen time has been intertwined with my work. You know, as a content creator, with a presence on social media, because that has played a huge role and it might be different from you and the way that you use screen time. So after Facebook and the newsfeed, I got interested in Instagram and I started, you know, watching the feed of pictures on Instagram, but then Instagram went to stories 
And Instagram stories create urgency. They're only there for 24 hours and then they disappear. And if you miss them, you miss them. They're gone forever. You miss the boat. That is FOMO, the fear of missing out at its best. But honestly, Instagram stories resonated with me more than Instagram because Instagram photos have always been very curated. Beautiful pictures that take a lot of props, a lot of editing to pull off. And that was never my style. I'm not a good photographer. I'm not good at staging things and pretending to be someone I'm not. Clearly, since I'm kind of laying it all out there today, you, you hear this. So stories were very kind of in the moment, capturing your real life, less rehearsed, more natural, more real, and they just were more me. So as far as creating social media content, stories have always been more natural for me. And over the years, I've had a lot of people on Instagram say to me, when I say a lot, I don't know, like a handful, a few dozen people specifically say to me that the reason they stay on Instagram is because they love my content. And my content is mainly my stories. So that means I'm bringing people to Instagram every day, maybe multiple times a day. I'm contributing to that compulsive checking and that FOMO. And that didn't sit well with me. But again, more on that next week and how all of that has impacted Simple Families and my business and the shift in what building community looks like online. After Instagram stories started, live video became popular. Another way to increase urgency. It's happening right now. Get on live and see it. Don't miss anything. You put your phone down and you'll miss it. But most recently, reels. So reels are these one minute sources of laughter or information or whatever you're going to gather from them. There's a lot of dancing and funny voiceovers. They're very entertaining and definitely lead towards compulsive use. You watch one, you want to watch another one. Oh, then you get led right into one more. It's hard to stop once you start. But what I have seen is the compulsive real viewing has shifted more into information. So not just like little entertaining videos anymore, but now how do we take a really big, broad concept, break it down into one minute and inundate you with it? And when you are inundated with these reels, these one minute reels that are loaded with heavy information that are trying to give you a PhD on Instagram in one minute, how does it feel to constantly have all that information thrown at you? It feels like a lot. It feels overwhelming. The reason that I'm here and that I created Simple Families was to help to lift some of the overwhelm and the burden. I don't want the way that I create content to contribute to that overwhelm and to contribute to that burden. And I'm very conscious of that. So that brings me to think about what my screen use is like right now and in the past two years since the pandemic started and what my kids' screen use looks like and how it's changed. So many things that we would have never considered to do online, we're doing online now. Like just on Friday, my daughter's violin teacher was sick, so she did her lessons on Zoom. She's the best, sweetest teacher. She's so engaging. I absolutely love her. But my daughter does not do great on Zoom, especially for Zoom violin lessons when you're in kindergarten. But her teacher was sick, like visibly sick, like you could see that she was coughing and sneezing and just not comfortable. And she was teaching a full day of lessons. Which kind of made me think, you know, 
why can't we take a sick day? Is technology going to prevent us from taking sick days? Is it going to be okay for kindergartners to learn instruments on Zoom forever? It's hard because there are so many windows of opportunity that are opened up online. So many wonderful social connections and learning opportunities. It is not, by and large, bad. But it is important that we question these changes in our lives and the ways which technology is slowly infiltrating every single thing that we do. Instead of just adapting it automatically, questioning it and being more intentional about the ways that we're integrating it into every moment of our lives. Making a decision about how we want technology in our lives rather than just letting it barge its way in and take over. So this week we're talking about my why, why I'm becoming more analog curious, the questions that I'm asking myself, looking deeper at my relationship with screens and my kids' relationships with screens as they've been born and how that's changed. And next week we're going to talk about some of the changes that I've been experimenting with, the good and the bad, the learning process. And it will look very different from yours but perhaps you'll be encouraged to take a more intentional approach yourself. Thanks so much for tuning in and until next week, have a good one.